0: This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 13, Episode 3, Manoush Shafiq, Director of the London School of Economics, in conversation with Philip Inman of The Guardian and The Observer. Manoush Shafiq is a leading economist. Her career spans both public policy and academia. In 2017, she was appointed director of the London School of Economics. Educated in the United States, LSE, and Oxford University, by 36, she had become the youngest vice president of the World Bank. She taught at Georgetown University and the Wharton Business School at University of Pennsylvania. Later, she moved on to the IMF and then became deputy governor of the Bank of England she was made a Dame commander of the British Empire in 2015 and in 2020 she became a crossbench peer that is an independent in the House of Lords with us today to discuss minutia's career and her philosophy is Philip Inman economics editor for The Observer and economics correspondent for The Guardian He joins us today from his office in London. Good morning, Philip, and welcome to the show. Good
1: morning, Jim. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me.
0: My pleasure. (laughs) Philip, in your roles at The Observer and The Guardian, you must get to know some of Britain's top policymakers. How did you get to know Manoush Shafiq?
1: Well, I sort of followed her career a bit because I've written about uh, all the organisations you've just mentioned, that she has worked at the IMF the Bank and most particularly the Bank of England when she was a deputy governor there. You kind of talk to people, we talk to them socially, uh, at drinks, we talk to them formally through interviews. She always struck me as somebody who had an interesting perspective particularly as a successful woman who quite often the case uh, in the UK thinks that they've got there through their own hard graft, that they've battled their way, that sexism doesn't really come into it. They try to be very sort of sex and colour blind, And given that she's a woman of color, it was interesting that she didn't take that attitude at all. She very much Thought of herself as a woman of color and somebody who had had to confront a lot to get to where she was and had a lot of help and rec- wanted to recognize that she'd had a lot of help to get there and that everybody needs help.
0: It's interesting that that you say that she had a lot of help along the way in her career and she recognizes that all of us need help in the, in the best sense of the, the term. Give me a sense of that of her philosophy and how she practices that philosophy at the London School of Economics, in her other professional endeavors.
1: Well, she recognises that one of her anecdotes is particularly when she became a top civil servant. So she was kind of courted by uh, a senior civil servant to come back from the US to the UK um, to take up a position, a senior position at our international. Department of of Aid. So Britain is one of the biggest donors of aid relative to its size in the world. Mm -hmm. And she was there at kind of the peak when the Labour Party was in charge. This is sort of before the financial crash, you know, and and after um, when money was still okay and we were still we had a big commitment after the crash to carry on with our aid budget on sort of a pre crash basis. So she was there spending that money is very expansive time for us, you know, as a as a nation in, in what we were doing to help other countries. But she was actually invited, that was a door that she said was opened for her. So while you have to push at doors,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you also she thinks you need someone on the other side helping you yes. open it. And that was one of her main things.
0: During her time there, so she was at the Bank of England. She was managing the aid budget for the British government. And did her budget continue to grow? Or was it, uh, of course, all governments were making cuts during that time. How was she able to manage the the political struggle of leave my budget alone? How was she able to do that?
1: Well, I think that when... One of the things that I, one of the reasons you picked up on this, Jim, was because I wrote a profile of uh, of Manoush recently, and yes, um, one of the things I didn't really go into in that profile was some of the really massive problems, and I would I would call them massive. They really were very 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 large problems that she confronted in the institutions where she worked. I mean, she was at the IMF, one of the uh, deputy to uh, Dominique Strauss Kahn. He was the French former finance minister who became head of the IMF. Yes. He then caught up in a in a sex scandal mm-hmm. and was forced to resign. Well, she, she had to basically, she inherited this organisation when it was in freefall. Likewise, when she was at the Department for Aid, she, she was seeing her budget starting to be cut. And, uh, you know, there was nothing she could do about it, really. It, it was the... The days when the, we had then had a conservative government that took over with a, a plan for austerity, that austerity in, uh, eventually turned its sights on the aid budget, um, which started to be cut. So I think she's had some she's had difficulties to deal with in her time politically, and I think it's probably quite battle-hardened because of it.
0: When she made the move back to England... How many years was she there at the the Bank of England? And I guess she had a a very senior role in setting British monetary policy.
1: Well, she did, yes. So uh, her brief was more connected to the financial regulation of the bank's and talking to the banks about how they were going to have bigger reserves so that we didn't have a repeat of the financial crash. But she was involved in monetary policy too. But there I think she had yet another difficulty, which was um, a a boss, Mark Carney, who arrived from Canada. Yes. And he had quite a fiery reputation. And I think that they didn't get on. And when it came for her three-year term of office to be renewed, which you you can do up to two, two terms of office uh, at the Bank of England as one of the external members of the Monetary Policy Committee, she didn't go for renewal. She, I think, decided to leave. I think you probably get to a point in your career where you, you're battling to be the number one, and lots of people thought she was going to end up being the number one at the Bank of England mm-hmm. at some stage. she'd hung around. I think she probably decided, that, and she hinted at this in the interview, that, you know, she, she saw more important things elsewhere where you actually have a nicer time doing it. And I think being the boss of a big academic institution like the London School of Economics was not only something she thought was important because she believes in pushing young people to better their lives, but um, also it was going to be a much more fun
0: experience. Well, of course, she's also an alum. She got her master's at LSE. So for her to go back there as the director must have been doubly fulfilling because she was going back to a school where she had studied. She knew the school from the inside, Obviously, she had been away from it for some time, but she knew the school from the inside. And when she came aboard at the LSE, did she come in with an agenda? Did she did she feel that that reform was necessary, or did she essentially leave things as they were and uh, with a view to making her moves later later on?
1: Well, she she ever struck me as one of the uh, a great reformer. She's um, but she you know, a lot of her time there now has been during the pandemic. So I think that she probably gets a lot of credit for, um, before she even got a fee under the table to devise a sort of, overarching strategy, she's um, had to go and put in place a sort of digital infrastructure to help students, as so many academic institutions have, and has a lot of credit for doing it very successfully, the LSE. You know, it's still obviously a a beacon and place that people want to go from across the world.
0: Well, I I remember when I was there, which was many, many moons ago, when I was there, I think the student body was about 60% percent non british non uk and about 40% british so even back then in the early 1970s it was a very cosmopolitan international student body drawn from around the world and of course you know we we all remember the numerous presidents and prime ministers uh, pierre trudeau who went there and jfk who did classes there and other prime ministers and presidents who attended there so even in its history and still to this day it continues to be a very influential school and and university throughout the world but is the of course you mentioned the pandemic and of course distance learning zoom classes how was lse able to blend that uh, that new distance learning approach into their traditional learning methodology
1: Well, I think they took, um, like many of the uh, elite institutions, they took a pretty tough attitude to it. So lots of colleges tried to carry on mix and matching um, the in-person tutorials, seminars, and lectures. But initially, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, LSE, they're among the ones that were totally online. And when I interviewed her, they were just bringing students back and testing every day you know so it was really rigorous testing uh, on the basis that then once you're inside the building nothing you you didn't need to worry so i think everyone it was a much harder line than the government was taking but everyone really appreciated it that i talked to inside the institution i would say that there's a broader issue facing uk institutions where um if i just rewind a little if you go inside the treasury in London, they almost have a map of the country divided up between those towns and cities with successful higher education institutions and those that don't. Mm -hmm. If you look at the GDP over the last 20 years, it's driven by universities. And not only are they a great export, because they're now based, uh, like American universities often are, uh, overseas, in Mm -hmm. China, places, but they draw huge numbers of people in and they drive the economies of wherever they are based. One of the problems the UK is finding is that this was all based on loaned money, so student loans, which I know is a massive issue in the US.
0: Yes,
1: um, it's, it's also a big issue in the UK, but we are under pressure because it's a public, strange public-private hybrid where the government kind of dictates what these private institutions do, so there's a cap on the fees. Well, a cap on the fees for the last five years means that universities are getting poorer as, a, uh, as institutions and looking for more and more towards their international students for, for cash. And that's placed them in a more risky position, um, particularly, say, for instance, you have a war with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, suddenly you can't have Russian students. Well, Russian students are a big part of you know the UK higher education experience. So they'll see the uh, difficulties ahead. You know, you're more vulnerable and the money's running out. And she's someone who has to deal with that along with um, all the other higher education institutions.
0: We have a similar problem here in California. The University of California, which is our gold standard university system, public university system here in California. Of course, UC Berkeley, UC San Francisco, UCLA are three of the numerous campuses of the University of California system. Similarly, the UC system under budget constraints has been looking for novel ways to increase its revenue. And apart from fundraising and trying to build up war chests and uh, endowments such as Harvard, Stanford, Brown have done, The public universities have never been quite as strong at doing that. So what the UC system has done, they have been expanding their student base both to international students and to out-of-state students. And international and out-of-state students pay about double or almost three times the tuition that in-state California native students pay. So the UC system is faced with a similar financial challenge that you just outlined that the british universities are are facing and so we're looking both internationally we're looking at other states to come here and pay the full the full bore if you will of uh, of tuition but let's come back to student debt because student debt has become a huge political issue here in the united states we have a total of about one trillion dollars or over a trillion dollars in student debt some students leave college with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, particularly those who go on to medical school, law school, dental school. But what kind of debt levels do British students face when they, when they, take, on, when they take on debt f- for their education? Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I think it's a huge problem. we we've just about to pass a law which um, effectively changes the contract of students here in the UK, they were taking out loans through the government, which they then paid back, and whatever was left when you were fifty years old was cancelled. Well they've now said because they think that fifty percent of the loan will not be repaid, they're going to extend the payment period till when you're sixty. <laughs> I don't know whether anyone's going to challenge this in the courts because we have this strange hybrid. It's a tax, it's taken out of your pay monthly, um uh-huh. Once, you pay, once you're paid over a certain amount. But equally, it's also a loan because when you finish your college, you can pay it off. You know, it's not a tax that you then have to pay for the rest of your life. If you're rich enough, you can just pay it off before the interest starts to kick in. Mm-hmm. And this strange hybrid was cobbled together by a coalition government after the financial crash in 2010 and uh, has survived. But whether it can continue to survive, I don't know, because its contradictions are just terrible.
0: Well, we have a similar situation here in the United States where you have baby boomers who are retiring. They're in their early 60s, 62, 65, and they still have their student loans. Student loans that they got maybe when they were in their 20s or 30s. They went back to school to get a law degree or an MBA or something like that. But that student loan is still there. So here they are retiring and they're still paying off student debt. But let's come back to Manoush, because you had mentioned offline that she had made a comment about, and you, you talked about in your opening comments about her acknowledging the fact that she'd had a lot of help along the way to get to where she is today. And as you said, we can push on doors, but it's also very helpful to have somebody on the other side of the door who's opening that door at the same time that we're pushing. Talk to me about that concept. Talk to me about that comment that she made that that we all need some help, because President Obama said something similar to that, and it was rather controversial.
1: Well, I think that she's tapping into something really quite important, which, which is the extent to which when you are Somebody who is relatively affluent you, you, and you own your own home and you have a job that you it either pays well or you enjoy. How did you get there? And I think so many people consider that they got there through their own hard work. It was their intelligence. It was their grit and determination the fact that they've ended up with a house worth a million dollars and a job that pays a $100,000 or more, well, you know, that that's down to them, the way they studied at school and they, the way they grafted in their early days of their career. And I think that this idea is filters through into whether you should be paying tax or not and sharing some of your wealth with the community through paying tax. In particular, that's one of the major questions. And of course, it's one of the justifications for not paying tax. Uh, That Other people should do what you did. That's how they should get the income they need to buy the health care, the education, whatever it is that they need, Um, not by the collective tax and that they should receive these benefits. And that can only be because you have a concept of luck, um, which is that you're not lucky. It's nothing to do with luck. So... I think if if you introduce luck um, and say that your house price is really, yeah, you might have chosen to live somewhere that you thought might go up, but you had no real idea and now it's worth a lot of money, that's luck. And lots of the decisions you'll have taken in your life will have been lucky or you'll have had someone on the other side of that door opening it for you. You might not have realized, but that is probably how you got the job. You might have met someone in the locker room and they gave you a, a good idea for your next role, uh, or even been on the interview panel when you came up for the job. You know, there's all those sorts of things happen in your life. And when you recognize it, it does change your view of how much you're part of a collective, how much you're part of a community, how much that community has helped you, and therefore how much you might want to pay back to that community.
0: I think your point is very well taken, but President Obama, and I think this may have been in his second campaign when he was running for re-election in 2012, sometimes he would go off script. Usually he was a very disciplined politician. He stuck to his teleprompter. He stuck to his notes. But on this occasion, he went off script and he was campaigning in a state where there were a lot of small businesses, and medium-sized businesses. And in his speech, he said to this assembled group of entrepreneurs, you didn't build that. That wasn't you. That was, you know, you had all the support of all these customers and so on and so forth. Now, it's certainly true that for a small enterprise, a small business, you can't grow without your customers. You can't grow without the support of a community. But that particular statement by the president, and it's it's kind of similar to the philosophy that you just outlined that, that Minouche uh, seems to share, it, it, that was rather more controversial here in the United States. Is Is it equally controversial in the UK?
1: Yes, I think it is. And I think it's also misinterpreted. So it's misinterpreted to mean that, you know, you didn't achieve anything by your own means. It was only because, you know, your house price went up because uh, they built a road outside it which allowed people to come and um, drive to your house. You know, there are all these shared things. That's why your house price went up. And, and if you just sit back, the state will give everything to you. Well, obviously, that's not true. You know, you do still have to work hard. And if you're going to get to the top of the tree, that's, you know, you need to study and you need to focus, and uh, you need to put in the hours. Of course that's the case. But has everything come to you because of that? Well, I think that's where you have to question yourself, don't you? And you have to say, no, actually, I didn't get everything because I put in the hard work. The, The community has also helped because they built stuff that I now uh, enjoy as part of the network out there, whether it's the physical network of bridges and roads and trains and airplanes, uh, airports and all the rest of it. You know, if we don't all club together and build these things, then they don't exist and we don't get to uh, enjoy them. And I think that there's needs to be more recognition of some of the luck that comes your way when you get to, get to senior positions.
0: Now, let's come back to Manoush there as a director of the LSE what kind of day-to-day contact does she have with the students does she set in setting policy and or is it is, is it more a question of her setting the tone for faculty what is her actual is she a very hands-on manager uh, is she articulating her philosophy to the faculty and the students or is she more hands-off
1: you know, she's someone who recognizes that leadership is incredibly important. I mean, in a way, we'd all love it not to be so. You know, we'd love the um, people th- throughout an organization to be able to set the tone. But the reality is that leaders are incredibly important in setting the tone. Mm-hmm. People are not not cheap when uh, in organisations, whether they're middle managers or senior managers or, or even further down the tree. But they do tend to be very political and read and second guess what the leader has to say. I mean, you know, in an extreme example, we're seeing that in Russia at the moment. When we when we see. Uh, President Putin sitting around the table with all his people and he demands answers to various questions and they all stare at their shoes and nod. Um, (laughs) A leader is very, very important in setting the tone for an organisation and whether you can be critical, whether you can bring up issues that are difficult, which allow an organisation to change and grow and develop or whether it becomes ossified because nobody's allowed to really question the leader. And I don't think she has that you know, from what I've talked to her about and, and to her colleagues, that's not the culture of the LSE. It's one of the better organizations because it has a leader that is open to questioning, that does put herself out there to talk to journalists like myself
0: mm-hmm.
1: and be questioned in interviews uh, as well as internally uh, amongst her staff. You know, this is not an organization that is sort of shut down intellectually. No, not, like that at all.
0: Well, that was certainly that was certainly the case when I was there. Lo those many years, it was a it was a an open forum of creative ideas. The best three years of my life I spent there at the London School of Economics, and have very fond memories for it. And every time I go back to London, I always make a point of uh, going to Houghton Street, walking around the the corridors going up to the Shaw library and listening to the music in those wing chairs, which in fact, they, the last time I was there, they were pretty much the same wing chairs that were there in the 19, early 1970s. But that's, that's neither here nor there, but Philip in the remaining few moments of the podcast, do you have any additional thoughts to share with us from your interview with Manoush? Because it sounds as though she is bringing, bringing a new and different and 21st century approach to leadership to the LSE. any closing thoughts as we wrap up the podcast today
1: well i think that she because she grew up in egypt as a small girl and was then transported to the us because her father was chased out of egypt by the dictator there when she went back she could see how dramatically different her life had been through a almost a trick of fate which was seen entirely negative at the time, you know, having to leave your country and go go to the US. But once she'd had the amazing education that she'd had in the US, I mean, a lot of it through adversity, mm-hmm. she could see how different she was to the girls in Egypt, who were subjects to religious oppression, financial oppression, and basically growing up in a poor area. So she, I think, from that carried on a kind of view that, she was lucky and that she ought to always be giving back to those who weren't lucky because it wasn't the fact that they were lazy or that they didn't care. These were, pe- you know, girls she could see would, would desperately want the same sort of thing that she had, but were just unable to.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Philip, on that note, and I completely agree with you on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for having been our guest today and for sharing these personal insights about Manouche Shafiq who sounds like a remarkable woman with a remarkable career. What's the next stop for her after the London School of Economics?
1: Well, I don't know. that uh, She didn't hint <laughs> at that apart from um, uh, to say that she's just renewed her contract, so she's gonna be there for some
0: time. She's gonna be there for some time, very good. Well, Philip, thank you very much for taking the time today to share your perspective on Manouche Shafiq and about the British education system in general and look forward to having you back soon, hopefully to, to talk about sanctions in Russia or, or other weighty economic problems that, uh, that you get to cover all the time at The Guardian and The Observer. Yes, yeah, speak to you soon, Jim. Okay, and for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com to subscribe. Just hit the subscribe button and all future episodes will come directly to you. And make sure to listen to the 248 previous episodes, which are conveniently arranged in 16 subject categories. And do check out the episode tab. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.